good to see everybody tonight, and it's good to be home. Uh, we're glad you're here. We're glad that uh, we have this opportunity during the middle of the week to come together. Uh, it's an encouraging time, and hopefully it'll be a learning time as well. As we've been going through the book of John, uh, the gospel of John uh, has easily become, I guess, my favorite, if I'm allowed to say that. Um, I've really enjoyed this study, really enjoyed the teachings that John brings out as he puts a lot of emphasis on the spiritual nature of Christ and, and His eternity and His reality. Um, and one of the things that John emphasizes is truth. And as he talks about Jesus and His relationship to the truth and, and our relationship to the truth and how the truth makes us free and the truth gives us eternal life, what we're seeing in John 18 is the truth put on trial, uh, that being Jesus Christ. And uh, up for the last few chapters from John 13 all the way to John 17, those have all happened right there at the Passover feast. Uh, they went in to eat supper. Jesus washed their feet, and then he began to talk to them about him going to the cross, and, and he would be betrayed into uh, the hands of sinful men. And not long after that, he began to give them words of comfort. And then finally, uh, last Wednesday when Justin spoke, um, he talked about the prayer that Jesus gave for his disciples and for you and I. And then they leave there. They've been, in, they've been in Jerusalem. They've been there in this upper room. They've been having this supper. And then it says that they went over the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and give you a little bit of geography here. Not much, but uh, this is obviously an artist's rendering of the temple. Uh, it was a magnificent structure there on the eastern side of Jerusalem. And over here just east of the temple, this is actually the, the actual temple right here. This is, this is the wall of the temple and this is the court of the Gentiles. It faced to the east, right over here where Mount Olives is, the Mount of Olives is. And so as Jesus and them leave Jerusalem, they go out east of the city and they end up over here in the Garden of Gethsemane just across this brook, the brook that is called Brook Kidron. And so here's the Mount of Olives and the garden is right here. So not really that far from the edge of the city where the garden is. And, and it tells us in verse 2 that Judas who betrayed him also knew the place. So this was a place that it says Jesus often met with his disciples. You know, you'd think if somebody was trying to avoid being captured, avoid being put to death, they wouldn't go to the place where the betrayer knew. But see, Jesus wasn't trying to avoid death. He was going out there to pray to the Father. And, and John doesn't record that, that prayer that Jesus uh, made there that we often talk about where he asked uh, the Father to let the cup pass from him. But this is what was happening there at that time when Judas and the rest of them came out. So it says, Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. So there's some different groups that it talks about here. This detachment from troops uh, most commentaries and scholars believe that was most likely a, a band of Roman soldiers. And it was very common around the Passover uh, that the band of Roman soldiers would increase because of the large crowds that would travel in for the Passover. And, and that's what they believe this was, was a detachment of troops. And then it says officers from the chief priests. And we're going to see this word officers a couple more times in Scripture. And we'll try to point out why that's significant in a little bit. So there was officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, and they came there, it says, with lantern, torches, and weapons. Now, uh, I believe it's in Luke, when they came out, Jesus actually mentions, have you come out with clubs against me? So some of them had swords, some of them had 
what we would probably call crude weapons, uh, clubs and staves, staffs, we would say, something like that. So I don't know how big this crowd of people was that came out to see Jesus, uh, but it seems like just from the language that we read in the Gospels, this wasn't 10 people or 20 people. It was a pretty big group of people that had come out there to arrest Jesus. So Jesus, therefore, verse 4, it says, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus, uh, he, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with him. So you notice Judas is being mentioned over and over and over. We're going to talk about Judas here in a little bit. It says, now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, I made a, a claim a while back that, that this, these two words here is ego, I me, I am. And the word he is actually added by the translator. So when, when they came out and they said to, or Jesus said to them, who are you seeking? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. Now, there's a couple of different perspectives on this. Perhaps he meant I am like he meant in John 8 when he was saying I am that I am, I am God. Or it could just be because this, these two words are actually used sometimes to say uh, that's me basically or I am who, who you think I am. And so it's possible that either one of those. Here's what we do know. These people fell backwards. These soldiers drew back and fell to the ground at Jesus' declaration that he was who they were seeking. And there's a lot of theories about that. I don't want to delve into all the theories. I just want to just suffice to say this. Whatever it was that caused them to fall back, Jesus is showing them something. You know what it is? They could bring a thousand soldiers out there. And if he doesn't want them to take him, they're not going to take him. He just spoke words to them. And these soldiers who are trained, they fall backwards to the ground. You know why? Because they're not in control here. He's in control. He's in control. And Jesus made such claims. John chapter 10, verse 17. Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. Now listen, I have power to lay it down. Now that might seem strange. I have power to lay my life down. What he's saying is I have the authority to lay my life down. Where did he get that authority? From God. It was God that gave him the authority. The Father gave him the authority to lay his life down. And he says, nobody's going to take that from me. I'm going to freely give my life. John 18, verse 7. Then he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I'm he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke of those whom you gave me. I have lost none. So let's try to understand what Jesus means here. When he says, I have told you that I am he, therefore if you seek me, let these go their way. So they come and he says, who are you seeking? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am he. And they fall to the ground. And then they get up. Then they get up off the ground. And essentially he's saying this. I'll let you take me, but you can't have them. That's essentially what he's saying. I'll go with you, but you're not taking them. Now consider these guys had just been overpowered by the words of Jesus. So you think they know who's in control at this point? Jesus is in control of this situation. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? You know, you think about Peter and his impulsiveness and how he was that uh, ready, fire, aim type personality. 
I don't think he was trying to cut his ear off. That, that, in fact, you'd have to be a very skilled soldier with a sword to actually cut someone's ear off with a sword. He was probably trying to cut him in two and the guy ducked or something. Peter was doing what he said he was going to do, which was die with Jesus. And, of course, Jesus told him, would you? <laughs> Peter, before the cock crows, you're going to deny, deny me three times. But Peter's ready to go to battle here. And you know what Jesus says? That's not the war. It's not the fight. He says, shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? When Jesus uses this phrase, the cup, this is actually recorded in all four Gospels. Not this particular statement, but the idea of his agony and suffering being a cup that the Father gave him. And, and that might seem like a strange analogy on the surface, a cup. But think about this. Think about someone pouring something in a cup and handing it to you, and they expect you to drink it. This cup represents Jesus' responsibility. And his responsibility is to die, to be made sin and die for the sins of all man. And he looks at Peter and he says, what, am I not going to drink the cup? He had just been praying about the cup. He just got finished praying about the cup, saying, let this cup pass from me. Had he accepted the will of the Father? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, we see this same thing in, in Matthew 26. I don't have this on the screen, but Matthew chapter 26 and 42, it says again a second time, he went away and prayed saying, oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Another instance in Matthew 20 where Jesus is talking to James and John and they're wanting to be elevated. They're wanting to be put on the right hand and left hand. You know what he asked them? He said, you don't know what you ask. Can you drink of the cup that I'm going to drink of? The answer is no. No, you can't. But he said, you will at some point drink of the cup that I'm drinking. Telling them you're going to die too. But that's not my, I, I can't give you that honor that you're asking me. This is my cup. And the honor that Jesus received was because of the cup that he drank. That's why he received that honor. He'd accepted his will. He'd accepted the will of the Father. And so Jesus told Peter, that's not the fight. I want you to look at another place in Matthew 26, 52. This same story that we're seeing about Peter, there's, there's a detail that I want to bring out. It says, then Jesus said, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus says, look, if I wanted to get out of this, I would. Peter, you, you don't need to pull your sword out and fight this. If I wanted to get out of this, I'd just appeal to the Father and He would send 12 legions of angels. Now, uh, a legion is sometimes a different number. It could be 4,500, 5,000, or 6,000. You say, well, that sounds like a song we sing, right? We sing about 10,000 angels. Well, he didn't say 10,000. He said more than 10,000. I don't have no problem with the song. It would be very unpoetic to sing. He could have called 72,000 angels. That'd be very hard to sing, wouldn't it? But this is where the, we get that from. It's Jesus saying, I could have called the angel. I could have asked the Father. He would have sent the angels. You think they would have stopped the angels? He is in control of this situation. Verse 12, then the detachment of troops and the captain... And the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And we're not going to go back and read this, but this is earlier in the book of John when, when Caiaphas made this uh, prophetic statement that it's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. So he's the one that said that. Well, Caiaphas is the high priest. And we're going to talk about this idea of Annas and Caiaphas because why would they take him to Annas when he's not the high priest? And so 
In Luke chapter 3 and verse 2, we're going to go back a little bit. Luke chapter 3 verse 2, this is talking about John the Baptist. It said, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, there's been some controversy about this as to why would there be two men that are simultaneously occupying the office of high priest. That, that was not normal. And so there's, there's some possibilities here. One possibility is that Annas was the high priest at one time and now his role had shifted and that Caiaphas was acting sort of like a deputy for the high priest. And that, that actually did happen at times. And so basically what that would mean was Caiaphas was the one that was in the temple and serving as a high priest, but they would still look at Annas as the high priest. Now, they always called them high priests even after their service was over because it was only a certain time in their life, I believe it was from 30 to 50, that they would serve as priests. And so Annas is referred to, he's going to be referred to in this particular chapter, John 18, as the high priest, even though in John 18 we just read that Caiaphas is the high priest. But Luke takes care of that when he says they were high priests. Both of them were high priests. And so we're not really necessarily concerned about that, just that they were simultaneously viewed as high priests. Now, it is also thought that Annas, uh, even though he was no longer serving as high priest, he was thought to be the chief of the Sanhedrin, like the top dog, you might say. And so it would make sense, he would still have some type of civil activity or civil authority, and so it makes sense that they go to Annas if he is the chief of the Sanhedrin, because that's who's leading Jesus right now. They're the ones that have conspired against him to capture him. So they take him to Annas, and it says Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was not known to, uh, uh, sorry, let me back up for a minute. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. So let's try to paint a picture for a moment. Peter is coming up to wherever Annas is and there's someone who's keeping the door, Okay. You think they're just going to let Peter in? Obviously they're not because this other disciple who was known to the high priest went and spoke to the doorkeeper and then Peter comes in after that. So apparently this disciple had some sort of acquaintance or relationship uh, with Annas. Now, there's a lot of speculation about who this is. And some have said, well, that's got to be John because John's the, as he writes this, he's always talking about himself in the third person. Well, John talks about a lot of people in the third person. And it really wouldn't make much sense that John would know Annas. After all, John is from Galilee and he's a fisherman, not exactly your elitist that would have a, a close kinship or a close relationship with the, the high priest Annas. So uh, there's a lot of speculation, but really that doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter who the disciple was. If it did, he would have told us. What matters is this. Peter found a way to get in there through help. So he's following Jesus. He wants to see what's going to happen. And so Peter comes in and this same woman, uh, this disciple, uh, not disciple, but servant girl, who lets Peter in is going to also be the one that interrogates him. So look in the, verse, the next verse, verse 17. It says, Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servants, now listen, and the officers who had made a, a fire of coal stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Who's he standing with? These are the people that just came out and brought Jesus to Annas's, and now they're standing outside getting warm around the fire and Peter walks right in among them. Do you see why they recognized him? 
I mean, this servant girl recognizes him. You're with Jesus. <laughs> no, no, I, no, I wasn't. I'm not one of his disciples. So John takes that thought, and then he's going to kind of, it's almost like a scene cut here. We're going to come back to Peter in a minute, but first we're going to go back to Annas and what's happening in Annas's home. So, so again, now we have Annas being called the high priest. And it says the high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. So what's he trying to do? Do you think he really cares? Do you think that he's interested in Jesus' disciples and his doctrine? See, Jesus knows these men like to play games. And so here's what Jesus said. Rather than telling him what he wants to know, because what this man most likely wants to do is use whatever information Jesus gives to him against him, Jesus answers and said, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always met and in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. Essentially, Jesus is saying, look, you already know. You know what my doctrine is. I spoke in the synagogue. I spoke in the temple. I spoke in public. And lots of people heard me. And it's not like Annas having that close relationship with the Pharisees. They all knew Jesus' doctrine. That's what the book of John is, is narrating for us through most of the book is him interacting with the Pharisees and teaching them doctrine. So this man is not interested in the doctrine. He's just trying to set Jesus up. And so Jesus answers him very plainly. And then what happens next? When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by Jesus or standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Think about this. Jesus is slapped by a man. This man has no idea he has just slapped God across the face. And what does Jesus appeal to? Did I say something wrong? Is what I said not right? And if I said what is right, why are you striking? And if I didn't say what was right, then bear witness. Just say it. Whatever I said that wasn't right, say it. And then Annas sends Jesus to Caiaphas. So we got the high priest here. We got the high priest here. Now he sends him to Caiaphas. And then we're going to go back to the other scene where Peter is outside. It says, now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied. He denied it and said, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? So this man, he was in the garden. He sees Peter out there. He's a relative, maybe a cousin or something, of Malchus, who Peter had cut his ear off. I, I saw you in the garden. And Peter, it says, then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. I think it's worthy of going over to a couple of the other Gospels and picking up some of the narrative of what's going on because getting the whole picture of this, and I know we know about this story, but I want to talk about it for a couple of minutes, and I, and I want to get into something else that happens here. In Luke chapter 22, we have this same story recorded with a few details added in, and it says, but Peter said, man, I do not know what you're saying. Immedi <coughs> Immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Now look at verse 61. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Imagine Peter. Imagine that feeling. As you stood there and you told Jesus, I will die with you. And he says, Peter, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. And I bet Peter was thinking in his mind, I'm not going to deny you. But you know what? When you get caught up in situations where you're overcome with fear and you're uncertain and you're confused and you don't know what's going to happen, sometimes you do things you wouldn't think you'd do. And Peter denies him, and immediately it says, 
While he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord looked right at him. Then Peter remembered. Then Peter remembered. You know the first time that he denied Jesus there? It didn't click in his brain. Oh yeah, Jesus told me I'd do this. The second time, didn't click. That third time he hears the rooster and the Lord looks at him, he goes, and what's he do? He goes out and he weeps bitterly. Mark chapter 14 and 71 even says, Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. This is the third denial. Now it's often been said that Peter is, is swearing with profanity here. And, and, and that word doesn't actually mean profanity. The, the word curse here is the word anathematizo. The word anathema means accursed. And Paul uses this word several times in his letters when he says, let him be accursed, or I could wish myself accursed from Christ. It literally means to invoke a curse on yourself. And what Peter's essentially saying is, if I'm lying about being and knowing Jesus, then may death come upon me or something of that nature, invoking a curse on himself to strengthen his statement that he doesn't know Jesus. So it's not necessarily a profanity. He's making an oath here, a promise, you might say. I swear I don't know Jesus. And if I know Jesus, then let something bad happen to me. So the question arises, did Peter and Judas commit a similar transgression? You know, I've often even thought, and I've heard lessons taught before, and I'm not here to necessarily be critical. I just want to think about this because it's often been said the only difference between Peter and Judas is that Peter repented and Judas didn't. And I want to ask you, is, is that right? Was Peter's sin equal to Judas's sin? And is that the only difference? Is that Peter repented? Let's listen to some of the things that the gospel says about Judas. John chapter 13 and 9 through 11, it says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean to Peter. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. Now, if they both were going to betray Jesus, why would Jesus say to Peter, you are clean, but someone here is not? Now notice this in John 12, 6. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to steal what was put in it. Judas was not a disciple like Peter. Peter was following Jesus. Did he have a moment of weakness? Did he fail in this situation because of his fear? Absolutely. But I'll tell you what he wasn't. He wasn't following around Jesus so he could line his pockets with the money that they were carrying around. Judas was a thief. Listen to what Jesus said about Judas in John 6 and verse 70. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you the twelve and one of you is a devil? One of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Did Peter betray him in the same sense that Judas did? Well, I find that hard to believe when Jesus said himself. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most surely I say to you, one of you will betray me. He didn't say, two of you will betray me, but one of you will repent. He said, no, one of you will betray me. What Judas did is different than what Peter did. Did Peter fail? Absolutely. But I'll tell you what Peter didn't do. He didn't plot and conspire to make money off the death of Jesus. It's not what he did. Judas was the devil. Judas's heart wasn't right. And we may look at Judas's heart when he comes back and throws the 30 pieces down and go, oh, see, he is contrite. Was he? Was he really? Or did he just overwhelmed with guilt like people do when they realize that they've done something terrible and they try to undo it? But he couldn't undo it. And so you know what he did? Killed himself. They're not the same. They weren't even the same. They weren't even alike in their person. Peter failed. And he failed miserably. 
but they were different. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium. And it was early morning, but they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Now I want you to think about this. First of all, this is, this, this is very telling right here. Not only is it arrogant, it also shows you they really don't have a whole lot of, uh, of weight when it comes to what they're accusing Jesus of doing. So they just couch that by saying, well, if he wasn't wicked, we wouldn't have brought him. Which basically what they're saying is, hey, you just need to trust us. He's bad or we wouldn't have brought him here. But I want you to think about their discernment for a moment. They wouldn't go into the praetorium. That's where Pilate was. It was, it was where the Gentiles would be because they didn't want to become defiled because that would have made them unfit to eat the Passover. So they didn't want to come into contact with a Gentile because that would have made them unfit to eat the Passover and be pleasing to God. But it doesn't defile them that they're trying to murder Jesus. Yeah, that's where they're at. Because this isn't about being right. These men are driven by pride and arrogance and power. And oh yeah, they were very dedicated to their traditions. But I'll tell you, if you look through the law, there were several things that would make a person unclean. But walking into a Gentile's house was not one of them. These men are, they're blind. They don't get it. Then Pilate said unto them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. They made this statement, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Because Pilate says, Look, if he's broken your law, you take him and judge him according to your law. And they said, Well, we can't. Well, this may not be so much that it was unlawful, but they actually reasoned within themselves. You look in Matthew chapter 26, that as they plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him, they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And so they're recognizing that it's going to cause problems for them if they try to put Jesus to death at this time because of what's going on in Jerusalem at the time. And so Pilate entered the praetorium again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Well, that's what they accused him of. Jesus answered, are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you this concerning me? And they, you know, that's a fair question. Are you asking me this because you think I'm the king or because somebody else gave you that impression? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? So Pilate, he's a little bit offended by that question. It seems like, am I a Jew? He's getting a little defensive anyway. Maybe not offended, but he's getting defensive. Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? What have you done? Look at Luke 23 and verse 2. You know, Pilate had just been told what he had done. So when Pilate asked this question, what have you done? He's not saying, what have they brought accusations against you? Because he already knew that. Look at verse 2. They began to accuse him saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Then Pilate asked him saying, are you the king of the Jews? He answered him and said, it is as you say. So think about their accusations, okay? Now this one right here is true. He is Christ the King. That's true. He did say that. But did Jesus pervert the nation? Did Jesus ever forbid to pay taxes to Caesar? Some have concluded by this statement that, well, if they accuse me of that, Jesus probably did say that, so I'm not going to pay my taxes. Well, big problem with that, because Jesus actually did say pay your taxes. In Matthew 22, tell us therefore, what do you think? It is, law is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar. Jesus never said, don't pay taxes to Caesar. This is a false 
accusation that they're making. They're slandering him. Jesus said, pay your taxes. Even Paul said, pay your taxes. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. You know what this chapter starts out with? Submitting to government. Now, I'll tell you, God's people, sometimes you hear God's people say, taxation is theft. Jesus said, pay your taxes. That's what he said, pay your taxes. And what they're saying he said is wrong. They're just lying. And so Jesus answers Pilate's question. Are you a king then? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. You know, this is very logical because you know how worldly kingdoms are established? They have to overthrow the existing regime or power. You know how they do that? Through violence. Look through history. Every time there was a change in an empire or a change of monarchy or a kingdom, how did it happen? It happened through violence, through conquering. And that's what Jesus is saying. If my kingdom was a worldly kingdom, there'd be a battle. And he's insinuating something here. I'd win. I'd win. But that's not my kingdom. See, that's not very threatening to Pilate. For Jesus to say, look, there's not going to be a fight. Yes, I'm a king. But that's not the type of kingdom... And he says, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I'm a king. For this cause I was born and for this cause I come, I've come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Whatever Jesus said to Pilate here caused Pilate to look at him and say, he is not guilty of what these people are saying. They're, they're trying to get Pilate to believe Jesus is going to try to start a revolution. They, they know the right button to push. But you know what Pilate's doing? He's just seeking out the truth. Seeking the truth. And there's something interesting here. I, I find it, this very interesting it, it, to think about that, that truth is on trial. And, and when you think about that, that's a very, uh, it's a very complicated thought. Because that's the purpose of a trial, right? That's the purpose of a trial. It's, it's designed to reveal the truth. And now we have truth itself in Jesus on trial. You know, people's testimony and the evidence is examined under scrutiny uh, to see if it holds up against what's factual. That's what's going on here. But then Jesus tells him something about truth that makes Pilate's mind think about something else. Jesus says, the reason I came into the world, the reason I came here is to bear witness to the truth. And then he says this, everyone who is of the truth. Think about that statement, of the truth the truth. What's he mean? He means of God. He means of the Father. He says, anybody that's of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate says, what is truth? Not because Pilate is contemplating that. This, this isn't a, a contemplative statement, what is truth. He's not pondering what is truth. But you see, Pilate comes from the Romans who have a very jaded view about truth. And they even had a view back in that time that truth was so far beyond the human mind that, that you couldn't possibly know it was truth. And it was very Similar to what we've got today in our postmodern world, which is truth is relative. And Jesus says, I came to bear witness of the truth and everyone who is of the truth. And so Pilate is saying, what is truth? He just cast it aside. Like it doesn't matter. So, so in some ways, Pilate's words, they, they kind of embody, they embody that idea of moral relativism, of what we see today. The truth is on trial now. And, and I want you to think about this with me because... It's not necessarily on trial in a court of law, but it's on trial in the carnal mind of man when he rejects and rebels against the will of God. Because there's something that you, you can't do. 
You can't say, God, I'm not going to follow your will, or God, I don't recognize your will without putting the truth on trial and rejecting Jesus, just as these men did. You have to say, Jesus, you're wrong. You're a liar. And in a sense, you're putting the truth on trial. And this is the result of that. The end of the chapter says, But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. They wanted to condemn Jesus so badly that they were willing to exonerate a murderer. You know, what's interesting is this just goes to show you how far a person will go when, when they desire something really bad. But it's, it's, it kind of works the opposite way today. Because when you try to exonerate yourself from your own guilt, essentially what you do, you have to do is condemn Jesus in the process. Because he is truth. And his standard of morality is absolute. And for us to look at that and say, yeah, but I can, you have to condemn him. As being wrong, as being a liar, rejecting him as Lord. Barabbas. It's an interesting name. You know, they would often give names to people that was indicative of some trait that they had. And his name was Barabba. Barabbas, son of daddy. What a strange name, son of daddy. And you know, when you think about Barabbas, you might think how terrible that they would release a guilty person and condemn an innocent man. And you look at Barabbas and go, what you got was not fair. Until you point the finger right back at yourself and realize that's exactly where we stand. Because Barabbas is symbolic of every one of us. Because here's the truth. In reality, if you're going to be exonerated from your guilt, Jesus must be condemned. On the cross of Calvary. And Barabbas experienced the same thing that you and I have experienced. And that's why Jesus drank the cup. He drank a cup of bitterness so you could drink a cup that is sweet. He drank a cup of death so you could drink a cup of life. He drank a cup of condemnation and agony so that you could reap and drink of a cup of blessing and joy. And he chose the nails. He chose the stripe. They didn't take it. They didn't force him. He let them do it. And he let them do it because of this right here. Because it's the only way for us to be. Friends, tonight we all... Offer the invitation of the gospel of Jesus Christ if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, if you're not a child of God, if you've not experienced the freedom that comes to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we want to encourage you to do that. If you are a child of God and, and you need prayers for any reason at all, for strength, for comfort, for sin, or whatever, for whatever reason, we're just here to help you. Come have a seat on the front as we stand and we sing.